Hey there, I'm your host, Paul. A few points of context ahead of today's show. First, thank you for listening. I realize there's a lot of material out there and I'm grateful that you'd spend your time with us. Second, if you want to get a sense of my background and the team that makes this happen, go to paulpodolsky.com. And lastly, if you like the material, please submit a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are the currency of the modern creator economy. This show's been downloaded tens of thousands of times, yet less than 1% of listeners will leave a review. And the same, by the way, goes for the essays about politics and money on Substack, and also the books, Master Minion and Raising a Thief, and the book that's gonna be out next year, Uncomfortable Truths About Money. And with that, let's jump in. My guest today on Things I Didn't Learn in School is Congressman Jim Hybes. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. Wow, there's a ton of talk about. First, take us inside what is going on with the negotiations around aid to Ukraine. This seems like something for somebody who grew up when Reagan was president, the idea that there is stiff Republican opposition to aiding Ukraine's fighting, Ukrainians fighting against Russian it's invasion. It's kind of mind boggling, but you're there. Just explain to us what's going on and what are the odds of any aid coming out? Yeah, well, let me not bury the lead and say that I still think um, it's more likely than not that we get a package done, which is aid to Ukraine and Israel, Taiwan, uh, humanitarian assistance to Gaza. But it, I wouldn't bet the farm on that. And and there's really two things to say. There's the sort of structural thing. And without without understanding the structural pressures on the speaker. It's hard to figure any of this out. But remember, he's got a two-vote majority. If he loses two votes, game over. That's a very narrow majority. And then he's got 20 or 30 people on his side who are either dedicated to being social media stars, and you know, social media stars succeed when they get famous for doing outrageous things, or they're just sort of out in this hard right more than MAGA, you know, pro-Putin, super isolationist world. And and the reason that's serious for the speaker is that not only can, you know, two members take down a bill on the floor, but when McCarthy became speaker, he gave each and every member of the Republican caucus what's known as a motion to vacate. So one member, you know, Lauren Bobart or Matt Gates on a bad day with a little bit of indigestion can stand on the floor and say, I'm forcing a vote to basically to take down the speaker. That's what happened to McCarthy. So that's that's the structural thing you need to understand. You know, the, the speaker can't just avoid you know, irritating a minority of the Republicans, he really can't overly irritate one Republican or two Republicans. So then to the substance of your question, which is the second important thing, there, there's always been an isolationist instinct in American thinking. Big, two big oceans, you know, we get involved in these things. Lately, of course, people look at Iraq, they look at Afghanistan, they say these were not resounding successes to say the least. And, and here's the key. The key is, of course, Donald Trump hates Ukraine. Always did. It was the subject of his first impeachment when he made the quote unquote perfect phone call um, in which he denied weaponry to the Ukrainians in a, unless they did sort of a sham investigation or produced dirt on Joe Biden. So if you remember the structure and you remember that this is a party that is really entirely captured by the whims of Donald Trump, you understand why Ukraine aid in the party of Ronald Reagan, uh, in the party of strong defense um, is, is really hung up. So you're in the chamber. And from your depiction of it, and also looking at polling, there's a lot of Democrats, a fair amount of centrist Republicans who are like the national security interests. Forget about even about helping Ukrainians. The national security interests of the United States are unambiguously helped by providing military support for Ukraine. So there's 
the majority of you in the room are thinking like this is a reasonable idea and you're staring at the structure that's as you describe structurally that makes it very difficult to actually get what most people in the room what that like what is going through your minds what are you guys talking about what's that like because from the outside looking in never having served in, in in that type of thing god it seems I understand that democracy is a debate and that there's a, it ought to be a wrangling and in the 19th century people are punching each other out. I know that. But it's got to be kind of like mind-bending to be in that room and feeling like on the one hand, you have the power and on the other hand, it's so dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, that's that's absolutely right. Because, I mean, let's put a fine point on it, right? I, I think pretty much every Democrat, all 200, what do we got? 212 Democrats would vote for Ukraine aid. And I think that half, based on some votes we took, you know, a couple of weeks ago, at least half of the Republican uh, conference would vote. So that's three quarters of the House right there. But remember, and let's let's use names here because this is very real. Marjorie Taylor Greene, she of course of the, you know, she's in the category of social media stars, you know, chaos agents. She has said that if the speaker brings Ukraine aid to the floor, she will put forward a motion to vacate. So now all business stops, and there's a vote on whether the speaker should remain speaker. If the Democrats vote against the speaker, which is a pretty intuitive thing to do, but I'll come back to that, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and two others vote against the speaker, boom, he's gone, just the way McCarthy was. So what's the solution? The solution is to either get rid of this one-member motion to vacate, where Marjorie Taylor Greene or Matt Gates or Paul Gosar can introduce that kind of calamity into the chamber. And remember, when Pelosi was speaker, she never permitted this one-member motion to vacate. Or, and this is where it gets really interesting, the speaker comes to the Democrats and say, look, I realize I can't get anything done without you guys. I don't, I don't have a functional majority. And so let's agree on a bunch of things we're going to do together, and you will protect me from Marjorie Taylor Greene's motion to vacate. What does that mean? That means that 40, 50, 60, whatever the right number is, Democrats vote no on kicking out the speaker. Now, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. It's a big negotiation. The Venn diagram between Speaker Johnson's belief and mainstream Democratic belief, there is no Venn diagram. There is no overlap there. But at the end of the day, Democrats are the party of getting things done. We showed that in the last Congress. And so if that were the deal, we could govern that way. The speaker can't govern under the current structural situation. Have you seen, you've been around, you know, you've been there for a while. Have you seen anything like this in your career? And I mean, would you like how big of a threat do you feel like this is to like on the recipient side as a constituent, it's a little unnerving to see that such paralysis. How big of a deal do you feel like this is? Or do you feel like the public's getting wise to the fact that the small group of people are holding hostage the whole chamber? You know, I've never seen anything like this. And remember, you know, Speaker Pelosi, lover or hater, wherever you think she is politically, um, she actually managed to wrangle in the last Congress a majority that was only slightly larger than the current Republican majority. But she, of course, had a lot of experience. She had a lot of gravitas. So that's the inside baseball. But, you know, the non-inside baseball is, yeah, it's absolutely mind-boggling. I mean, as we just said, that the, you know, that the party of Ronald Reagan, the party that can legitimately claim that it won the Cold War, would 
you know, be siding with Putin, be taking steps that will create all sorts of havoc down the road with China. I mean, you, you think President Xi isn't watching this? What is President Xi of China saying? He's saying not only do the Americans get tired when they've got troops on the ground the way they did in Afghanistan and Iraq, they get tired when they're sending money and don't have a single casualty. Right. And, and the, you know, the destabilizing aspect of that. Or I was at the White House when Mitch McConnell told the speaker, I was in the room and Mitch McConnell says to the speaker, the immigration border bill that Chris Murphy and, uh, and, and the Republicans uh, worked out, he said, this is better from a Republican standpoint than anything you would get under a Trump presidency and Republican control of the House and the Senate, and yet they tank it. A historic opportunity. And so again, it's sort of hard to explain because the party of Ronald Reagan, the party of Richard Nixon, you know, the party of, uh, of, of Eisenhower has become this just pit of chaos. Well, it's like a sliver of it, but it's enough of it to undermine the whole thing. So when you're in that, in the White House, Mike Johnson is there, Mitch McConnell's there. So what does Mike Johnson say back to something like that? Well, Mike Johnson is polite to a fault. I mean, he, you know, in my four or five interactions with him, he's been just superbly polite. But this is sort of my point. Mike Johnson doesn't matter here. You know, there is no single human being you can put in the speakership with a one-member vote motion to vacate, all this sort of insider baseball-y stuff that we've talked about, doesn't matter that Mike Johnson has played. Look, it could be Jim Jordan. It could be anybody. And, and it's just, you know, they have an ungovernable situation unless, unless they come over to the Democrats and say, we're going to do a deal and we're going to agree on three or four things we're going to get done before the end of this Congress uh, and you're going to protect me. You know, everything that has gotten done under this Congress, under Republican control, has gotten done because at the end of the day, whether it's the continuing resolution on the budget or whatever, it's gotten done because it has gotten bipartisan support. So the sooner the speaker realizes that that's the only way anything is getting done and does the deal with uh, with Hakeem Jeffries, as soon as he does that, we'll actually get Ukraine aid, Israel aid and, and, and a budget done. But this did not happen with immigration. In other words, the immigration, this this historic bill was passed, and yep. but but that didn't make it through that process. It made it through in the Senate, right? Right, but I'm saying on the House, in other words, to try and po- force this negotiation between the two of them. It didn't. But what happened to the immigration bill is is yet another example of what I've been talking about, where it doesn't matter what the majority is; it matters what two or three people named Gosar, Taylor Green, you know, Chip Roy think. Because, I mean, before the outlines of the deal were even announced, Speaker Johnson was calling it dead on arrival. You know, before he even knew what was in the deal. Why is that? For two reasons. Number one, because one or two members on his side has veto over all legislation, he knew that this was, even though this was ferocious, I mean, this was right wing ferocious stuff. He knew that it wouldn't be enough for all of his members. And number two, let's face it, it's clear now, the Republicans would much rather have a chaotic border and use that to run against Joe Biden uh, than they would like to solve the problem. And by the way, this is something I've watched for the last 15 years or so. It, you know, In 2015, I think it was, John Boehner had an opportunity to put an immigration bill on the floor that had a huge bipartisan majority in the Senate. And he said no, because there is this instinct in the Republican Party to just keep the border as an election issue, right? Look, the economy's doing relatively well. It's still not where we want it to be, but the economy's doing pretty well in the United States. Right. Uh, you know, Joe Biden's doing an okay job. So the immigration thing is really the one political thesis that the Republicans have, and by God, they are not letting it go. I've, I've experienced this in my family, with family members, and I wonder if it's like this. Like if with these people that are the most most firm advocates of basically creating chaos 
are you able to have any dialogue with them? Like, are they aware of the ramifications of their decisions? Obviously, on the social media thing, it's one thing, but at a certain degree, it's like, I would think like they're serving in Congress, there's broader ramifications for this, like really terrible things can happen, you know, that they're all aghast at what happened in Afghanistan. Like, it seems like you get a much more vicious version of that in Ukraine if the weapons aren't provided. Ditto the thing for the long-term security and stability of the United States on the border. Like, it's so, it just, like, getting in their mindset seems so difficult for me. And, like, when I've tried it with my family members, I've failed. So <laughs> what's, so are you able to have any success with them? Or is it the same basic dynamic that in families that are on the floor of the house? Yeah, well, you know, you see the pain. First of all, let's be clear. I've, I've been pretty tough on the Republican majority. Um, you know, well more than half of them are traditional Republicans, right? And I could I could name a number of them. You know, these are guys who are desperate to do Ukraine aid, you know, who would have taken a border deal, but they're terrified. They're terrified that Donald Trump is going to end their careers. And look, Donald Trump has ended the careers of dozens of senators and members of Congress. You know, ask Adam Kinzinger, ask uh, Liz Cheney. You know, and by the way, we see retirement after retirement after retirement of the more traditional Republicans, including, by the way, committee chairs. It's unheard of for committee chairs to retire with the prospect of, you know, a couple more years as as chair or ranking member of a committee. And yet they're retiring because they just can't deal with it. And, you know, to, to your specific question, sure. Do I talk to Mike Turner and French Hill and any number of other very reasonable Republicans? Of course I do. But, you know, what I think doesn't necessarily factor into their political calculus because they know that if they go home. And by the way, this is an interesting dynamic that doesn't get talked about enough. Right. So a Republican goes back to their district and faces their primary voters. Their primary voters are watching OAN. They're watching Trump's speeches. They really believe, by the way, that the election was stolen. Sixty percent of Republicans polled believe that. They believe Donald Trump when they say the country is going down the drain. If you don't elect me, you know, the country's going to be gone. They are fired up and they don't have the courage to say no. You know, the courage that John McCain showed when the woman in the in the town hall meeting said Barack Obama is a Muslim and he said, no, ma'am, he's not. He's a family man. He's a church going. That courage is gone. And so what happens is, you know, they don't stand in the way of the crazy. And so they become victims of it. Right. And they come back to Washington and they say, well, I'd love to vote with you on this. I understand this. But, oh, my God, my constituents are so fired up. My constituents have concerns about the election. Well, of course they do, because you never stood in the way of the lies. And, um, you know, and, and sort of stop this vicious circle. Yeah, though, every time they look at somebody who stands up, you said Liz Cheney, they get toasted. Exactly. So that's a pretty intense thing to run against. I guess the roots of what we talked about in our previous conversation about social media and the change and stuff like that. So this is a super uh, powerful force. Are you contending with it at all in your district? You know, it's it's a super interesting question because, um, you know, we've never had a figure like Donald Trump, and I'm not sure that we could. I've thought a lot about this, right? I'm not sure that we could. Why do I say that? Uh, l- let me draw a cartoon here. Uh, and I know that this is not fair, but it also shines some light. You know, the re- Republicans are a very undiverse group of people. Right? There's lots of exceptions here, but just come to the House and you'll see that, look on the Republican side, you'll see predominantly middle-aged, southern, midwestern white guys. I'm, I'm stereotyping here. I know it, right? Look at the Democratic side. We got the Congressional Black Caucus. We got Hispanics. We got lots of Jewish people. We got LGBTQ. We are this unbelievably diverse thing. So I'm not sure that the alignment, the cult-like adherence that you see on the right works on the left, right? But I will tell you, yeah, there are areas of ferocity 
the number one, of course, being, and, and man, is this in the news, being the political reverberations of Israel-Gaza. Right. That is something that is absolutely consuming the Democratic Party and, you know, obviously has real implications for, and I hate to talk about it in political terms because this is a geostrategic tragedy, but it obviously has political resonance in places like Michigan for the president and for members like me, you know, I mean, I'll get on a Zoom with Palestinians and, 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 and Muslims and others. And, it, you know, it's just heartbreaking to hear the stories. And then you get on a Zoom with or you meet with pro-Israel advocates and you just, you know, it is really one of the most contentious emotional subjects that I've had to deal with in my time in Congress. So, yes, there is. But it's but it doesn't it doesn't begin to match up. Right. I mean, to the just sheer ferocity of the attack on establishment Republicans. What percentage of the Republicans that are stuck in this realize that it's sort of a cult that they're trying to live through? And what percentage of them do you think are true believers? Like, I think if you looked at the Times vote of the if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me. The percentage of members of the House, I think 147 members of the House voted to overturn the election. So that would give you some sort of reading. If I, I believe I have that New York Times statistic right. Here's what I would tell you. There are 10 social media personalities. That intersects, of course, with some really hard right members, you know, that believe that the United States federal government should be what it was in 1890, right? Protect the borders and collect some customs and that's it. But then, you know, and then you've got some MAGA adherents who whatever, you know, Donald Trump wants, uh, they get. And But here's the thing. I would tell you that half of the Republicans, and I see this every day, they've done a, yet another pratfall on the floor. They failed to pass the first time the impeachment of of Mallorca's or they failed on a rule and the elevator doors close and two Republicans are just, you know, they just light themselves on fire. There's no press, but they let, you know, they're just like these idiots, these stupid idiots, these guys who are ungovernable. I mean, they're, they're tougher on their own, mm. you know, fringes behind closed doors uh, than Democrats are. Turn to the elections coming up in November. So there's, there's, there's two different aspects of it. The first thing is, and it's, it's an impossible question to answer with precision, but I'd be interested in your Point. It seems like there's two levels of risk. The first thing is, is the integrity of the election itself, which was a key thing in the last. And fortunately, you know, the United States didn't descend into violence, though. Well, I guess it did at the Capitol, but it didn't descend like election officials weren't shot type of thing. But that's obviously happened in many countries around times of elections. So going into this and given how fraught the different the, particularly the more extreme media outlets are about this, like you must be concerned, but how concerned to what degree about the ability of the election itself to take place in a way that is orderly? Yeah. And it's worth parsing this a little bit. Look, I don't worry too much. I worry about everything, but I don't worry too much that somebody's going to hack the election gear and, you know, all these fantasies about Dominion machines, which, you know, Fox News had to cough up almost a true, you know, a billion dollars in fines for, for suggesting was true. I don't worry that much about that stuff. You know, the mechanics, the machines, et cetera, highly fragmented, very difficult to manipulate. I do worry about two things. Number one, it's happening right now which is the Russians in particular, but others possibly seeking to um, stoke the fires of rage and anger uh, and to stoke the fires that, you know, the system is rigged, right. you know, it, the fix is in, really to manipulate American public opinion. We are immensely manipulatable right now. And this happened in 2016. It happened in 2020. I worry a lot about that. And then second, I can spin out any number of scenarios from the Supreme Court ruling, this is very unlikely, but the Supreme Court rules that Donald Trump can't be on the ballot, 
to, you know, a very close election that somehow gets messed up on January 6th, God help us. I can spin out any number of scenarios where a really agitated American public, and in particular, the supporters of Donald Trump engage in, in really ugly violence. That's that's the scenario I'm terrified about. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I was in the chamber on January 6th, so I will never not take that possibility seriously again. And we can count on Donald Trump to stoke it. We can count on the Russians to back it with, you know, fairly sophisticated social media manipulation. And, you know, this is why we got to take I say this every time I'm in a town hall meeting. We just got to take the temperature down, folks. Our politics are about arguing about immigration policy and whether top marginal tax rates should be 39 percent or 35 percent. This is not existential stuff. Right. If we keep thinking of it as existential, you know, look, when you think if you believe Donald Trump, that this country, which everyone is trying to get to, right? I mean, nobody's trying to get into China or Russia or Iran or North Korea or Venezuela. Everybody is trying. If you believe Donald Trump that this country that everybody is trying to get to, that has one of the most you know uh, powerful economies in the world, if you believe that we are one day away from obliteration, you're going to do some pretty crazy things. But Jesus, wake up. Look at look at our country and say, does it sound right? Is there anything, so A, is that view bipartisan? Like, listen, we can't have election violence because it's a little bit scary after the last thing that other people are voting, basically members of Congress are voting for the big lie. Is it bipartisan agreement like FBI, law enforcement should be out there in a nonpartisan way, making sure that that type of thing does not happen? Not really. Oh boy. Not really. And this is a really dangerous thing. And I and I take it personally because you know I I was not a happy guy uh, midday on January sixth when I couldn't get out of the chamber and you know guns are drawn and you know a woman's been shot. Here's what's happening: the Democrats and others are saying, "Hey, let's cool this down. Let's you know, yes, you know, have the FBI, whoever it takes." The Republicans are saying, oh, well, yeah, January 6th, you know what? They're political prisoners. They're hostages. Oh, gosh, they were actually pretty peaceful. And oh, what about Black Lives Matter? Look at the look at the look at what happened in Seattle. Look at what happened in Portland. You know, what about what about oh, what about the shooting of Steve Scalise on a on a on a baseball field? You know, no, they're doing exactly the thing you do if you don't stand in the way of violence. Lots of whataboutism to Black Lives Matter, lots of whataboutism to Steve Scalise and you know, oh, the FBI, the fix is in. And, that, and that's bipartisan? No, 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 no. That's what the Republicans are saying. That's not the lunatic fridge? That's, I'm saying that view you're having, the whataboutism, is across all the Republicans or is just more the extreme? Bit? Absolutely. I mean, publicly, publicly. Again, it's hard to, it's hard to exaggerate the ferocity I mean, <laughs> here's a thought experiment. I think I could make an argument that Jim Comey, the director of the FBI, yeah. handed the election to Donald Trump when several days before the election, he came out and said, guess what? We've restarted the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email. Right. Remember, this is the world, right, yeah. you know, lock her up, lock her up. I could make a case, and it wouldn't be a weak case, that Jim Comey, director of the FBI, handed the election to Donald Trump. And yet today, the FBI is the worst of the worst, the deep state, deeply anti-Trump. Now, never mind, I don't know the number, but never mind that like any other police agency, the FBI, I suspect, is pretty heavy with Republican registered uh, personnel. Right. But anyway, that's how crazy this is, right? And again, there are plenty of good, thoughtful Republicans who do not have the courage to stand in front of a camera and stand in front of a crowd and say, no. Joe Biden won the election fair and square. No, we can't have violence. You know, it just it just doesn't happen. 
But I mean, hearing this, I'm going to say something that's that's extreme, and I don't mean it's the most likely thing, but just sort of think, you know, I've spent a lot of time as an investor, so you always think about low probability odds that can have significant impact. It's it sounds like a pretty scary election, basically. It seems like there's if that's literally what the view is among enough of the people on the other side, the possibility of this being of a real dissent into disorder is just hearing you and processing, it sounds higher than it's ever been in my lifetime going into this election. Do you think that that's fair? Yeah, um, I do. I do. Look, um, despite the fact that all of the people around Donald Trump who, you know, whether it's Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell, despite the fact that they've all been legally sanctioned, some of them convicted, many of them had their law licenses revoked, there is still a group of people more competent, by the way. I mean, the Giuliani, Sidney Powell show, this was, you couldn't have written it, right? I mean, it was just so absurd. Four Seasons Landscaping, et cetera. You know, the scary thing is Steve Bannon and others are lining up smarter people. Oh, boy. To be ready to take advantage of it. So, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, look, I'm an optimist, but I I think unless the electoral count victory for Joe Biden is just, you know, massive, which there's no reason to believe that it will be, right? I mean, our presidential elections are, are very, very close these days. Unless it's just beyond dispute, some very bad actors are going to do everything they can to dispute it. And the days of, you know, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia as secretary of state saying, no, we're not doing this. Or Mike Pence, vice president, saying those those people have been sidelined. Those people have been sidelined. And, you know, the whole Trump machine is putting in place, you know, high priests of the of of the cult. Oof, it is really scary. Okay. The um, And your message for the rest of us beyond voting for people who are not willing to endorse uh, the big lie, organizing, do you have any other, like for those of us who hold these values dear and you've got one set of responsibilities, how do you relate it to listeners? Look, I think pre-crisis, and I don't, we've, been, we've taken a very pessimistic turn here. I just think we need to be ready. We need to be ready for another attempt to contest the election with its attendant violence, what we, expect, what we experienced on January 6th. In the meantime, you know, what we need to do is very clear. Uh, number one, we need to remember that this election is not a typical election because love or hate Joe Biden, and people are on both sides of that, he is a traditional presidential candidate who believes in the rule of law. Donald Trump, and by the way, don't take it from this Democrat. He says so. Yes. Donald Trump is not. He, uh, we get all the shilly-shallying about, oh, I'm going to be a dictator only on day one. Yeah, I mean, just come on. <laughs> right. Know? So so I think, and, and you know, by the way, we politicians have done the electorate a disservice by every two years saying this is the most election, the important election of our lifetime. Right. Sadly, we say that and it's crying wolf. But just look at the options right now. And I understand being angry with Joe Biden on his position on Israel-Gaza. I understand being concerned that he may be the oldest president we've ever had, blah, blah, blah. I get all that. But the stakes are very, very high. And we need to mobilize. We need to organize. We need to win this election handily. And then we need to be prepared for what may come. And, and when I say we, it's not just you know individual citizens. It's the courts. The courts and the media stood up to Donald Trump by and large. We just need to be ready. That's all I'm saying. Super helpful. So turning to local conditions here, I mean, we talked about two things, just turning to the economy. 
A, what's your assessment of how your constituents are doing? Like I look at it, unemployment is low, the stock market is up, a lot of the supply you know, chain things are all out of the way. Yet if you look at the polling, it's literally split. Like the Republicans, registered Republicans say the economy is a disaster, registered Democrats have a different view. Among your constituents, what's your assessment of their and, – and obviously you're, you're connected to some very affluent districts, but what's your assessment of their overall read on the economy regardless of party affiliation? My, my district is about as diverse as it gets. I have some of the wealthiest people in the country and I've got some real poverty in some, in some of my cities that I represent. And so, no, I see the spectrum. And I, and I would say this. Um, the economy is in much, much, much better shape than uh, it was two years ago, three years ago, four years ago. Uh, gas prices are down, and I, I sort of hate to have to put that up front, but the truth is that Americans, when they're thinking politically, you know, the one thing they see a couple times a week, once a week, is the, is the price at the gas station. And of course, the president has no control over that. But anyway, gas prices are low. The market is high, higher. That doesn't you know, impact all that many Americans. Unemployment is very low. Jobs are out there. The one thing that is an ongoing irritant is that, you know, inflation has been high. And so when you go to the supermarket, you think, whoa, you know, this bill is a heck of a lot higher than it was a year ago. And people see that every day. Unemployment being low, you either have a job, in which case, you know, who cares that unemployment is low uh, or you don't. Maybe you feel a little better that there's some options out there. But people see both gas prices and the supermarket uh, bill every every single week. And, and it's, it takes time. Look, I mean, everything, all of reality is mediated these days through your partisan lens, right? I don't know if you saw it, but recently there was this just hilarious thing where a reporter recounted a Trump policy to a, a voter at a MAGA rally. They, they said it was wonderful. That was great. That was so smart saying that, you know, bright lights can kill COVID. That's wonderful. And then they flip it around. They say, oh, sorry, Joe Biden said that. And the exact same person 10 seconds later says, oh, what a stupid, stupid. I, I mean, so anyway, my point is that reality is mediated largely through one's partisan lens. But that doesn't happen forever, right? Eventually, you sort of come to realize it's son of a gun. This economy is actually doing pretty well. And, and again, that's why the Republicans didn't take the immigration deal, because they understand that, you know, by November, assuming there's not a, you know, a market turnaround, a, an economic turnaround, they know they're not going to be able to run on the economy. And, and so they just need to be able to run on chaos on the border, even though now by rejecting the deal, I think they own the chaos in the border. But, you know, if you're a regular watcher of Fox News, that doesn't penetrate. So this is a more insider baseball question, but some of my readers are like this. One of the things that strikes me about a potential Trump victory in the fall is we're going into it with a very significant, you know, the biggest non-war budget deficit that the United States has had, I think, ever. And then if you have Trump come in, the big things that he's talking about so far, and it's always his policy is unpredictable, will be more tax cuts. You mix in with that the possibility of some sort of chaos. One of the potential outcomes here is the real implosion of U.S. financial markets, particularly if you were to do this in some way of trying to undermine the independence of the Fed. Is this something that is only on the minds of sort of finance nerds, or is this reality of like of like Robert Rubin has talked about it, Larry Summers has referred to it, like thoughtful people have about potential real financial volatility if you get a, a, a Trump win. Is this something that is on the minds of Congress people at all? Yeah, I, I, I think a little bit. I mean, and there's there's at least two things to say. Number one, who the heck knows? I mean, you know, Donald Trump is famous for, you know, having a very different policy on Wednesday than he had on Monday. Right. 
But some of the things that he's talking about, which we have reason to believe that he would do, you know, 10% across the board tariffs on American imports would devastate the economy. I mean, remember, it's not just the, you know, the tariff on the imported Mercedes or whatever. It's also the tariff on all of the parts and steel and everything that we import would be massively inflationary just to pick one. It would be really, really hard on the economy. Um, if just the tariff policy alone, so something like that, if he imposed 10% across the board tariffs, you know, that could, that could cause a major market route. There could be a point where the capital markets say, oh man, you know, this is just chaos. We're not going to trust the United States to be a responsible actor. And so now all of a sudden the interest rates that we pay on U.S. debt, we go, go way up with a very substantial debt. So you can play out any number of scenarios. I mean, look, let's face it. Donald Trump got very lucky uh, in his first term, right? The markets rocked and rolled. The economy was very strong. COVID brought an end to that, right, um, and devastated the economy. But, you know, it's sort of hard to believe he's going to get lucky twice on the economy. And, you know, again, when no one knows if there's a pair of adult hands on the, on the tiller, yeah, it could get ugly. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We're genuinely touched by all the support. If you want to see more of this type of content, sign up to my Substack on paulpodolsky.com and become a paid subscriber that helps supports the team. Uh, you could also submit a review to Apple Podcasts, which draws other listeners to this. If you have any questions, you can email me, paul at paulpodolsky.com and follow me on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Thanks so much.